0: Hello and welcome to Insights, the podcast from the Cork University Business School at UCC, bringing you some of the most topical and informative research from Cubs that is making an impact not just in Cork, Munster and Ireland, but beyond. I'm Anthony McDonnell, Head of the Department of Management and Marketing, and on this week's episode, I'm joined by Gerard Brady, Head of Tax and Fiscal Policy at IBEC and a Cubs alumni.
1: Basically, I'm, I'm head of tax and fiscal policy, which is a bit of a mouthful, but but I head up the economics unit uh, in IBEC. Uh, I've been here for about six years. So, like, uh, I guess to get a grip with of, of what IBEC is as an organisation, we have about 30 million in turnover, about 250 staff now, offices in Cork, uh, in other Irish regions, in Brussels and, and the main office in Dublin and basically we do two things uh, in in my role um you communicate with the public uh, about issues that impact business and impact on the economy uh, and then on the other side of things you you talk to businesses about what's what's impacting on them what their issues are and you're trying to talk to government and talk to other stakeholders trying to influence policy and make sure that uh, that policy uh, things like Brexit trade tax uh, work out uh, and and that business uh, business views are heard in the debate.
0: Okay, so from my understanding, IBEC represents about 70% of the private sector economy in Ireland. Can you maybe just talk me through what you see as, what is IBEC's economic tax and fiscal policy? Is it all about tax, cut, tax cuts for business and keeping costs down or not?
1: So I suppose yeah, we, we represent uh, about seventy percent of private sector workers work in an organisation that's a member of IBEC in effect, um, and and we have about forty trade associations under the IBEC umbrella. Everything from the small firms all the way up to multinationals, exporters, and 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 those selling into domestic economy. So it pretty much covers the whole economy. I think the big focus over the last couple of years has been on investment. Um, that's the that's the major issue we've heard of of businesses that actually if you look at competitiveness and the issues that are driving competitiveness issues for government or for for business um a huge amount of them are coming down to issues like housing Uh, things like access to skills and and are we funding higher education uh, sufficiently to be able to get those skills into business Um, and those are the big challenges the business are facing on the other hand look uh, from a tax point of view a big challenge for us over the last couple of years has been protecting what we have in terms of corporation tax internationally Uh, Ireland's uh, gone through a huge amount of change and and the the world has gone through a huge amount of change on corporation tax and and Ireland's done pretty well out of it uh, actually but that reform was necessary and trying to trying to bring a business voice and bring the irish business view to that to that change and that reform was was a big part of our work
0: okay so like the mention of corporation tax that's been obviously heavily central in our foreign investment strategy and as you said there's a lot of changes have been taking place over the last few years and that how do you see that evolving over the next years as as it's still obviously it's quite a a topical and significant issue with the apple and european case
1: yeah I, i think it's it's a it's one that's going to keep emerging. So basically, what's happened over the last few years for for people listening in is that that you had a system that was designed for manufacturing that a company made whatever it made, we'll say blocks of cheese in Ireland, and and sold them to 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 a, a company or a company or or a retailer elsewhere, and then on to consumers. Um, and that model's changed because of the growth in the digital economy in particular, and global supply chains and globalization has shifted. Now uh, now one product can be made across five or six different countries at different stages of the process and, and can be sold to, to consumers uh, over the internet or it can be sold to consumers um you know in in any number of hundreds of countries. So there's there's been huge change in the tax system. The change is now caught up with that, I suppose. How that continues, the big impact it's had in Ireland so far is actually that the companies have had to align their, their substance with where their profits are. Companies had their HQs here. They had a lot of profits here, and now they're putting in huge investments to 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 match that, and particularly in areas like biopharma, medtech, tech, and and tech. You've seen huge uh, record numbers, basically from the from the Ida over the next over the over the last couple of years, and you've seen. A big jump in corporation tax take. Um so our our um look at looking out forward to 2020 and onwards, that's still betting in. So we don't we don't have a clear idea of where it'll end. Um Ireland has been one of the big winners so far, but there's no guarantee of it. And the big challenge, and I know the, the Fiscal Advisory Council and Seamus Coffey, who's who's lecturing down in UCC, has drawn attention to it uh, along with ourselves, this this idea that we've gone from four billion in corporation tax a year to almost 10 billion this year. Um since 2014. And that change then has been built into current spending. So it makes uh, the fiscal uh, kind of space for Ireland, the, the amount of money we're spending on day to day stuff um, is based on the kind of taxes that have come in and are very uncertain after 2020 what happens and how this all works out. It could work out fine, but there's a risk there.
0: Okay, very interesting. Um, you also mentioned one of the key, I suppose, pressing issues being around housing and, and it's hard for anybody to escape that conversation in Ireland over the last um, 12, 24 months. What What are your views on how we address that housing issue?
1: So I think there's a number of issues from a from a short-term point of view. There's There's very little that the state can do because it's a timing thing. We we have been saying to government and had been saying to government since 2014, 2013, that they needed to up capital investment. Because where we were in the cycle and we were going to run into capacity constraints and in 2013 people were saying, well, you're crazy. We have enough houses to do us forever. Basically, we're after coming out of a housing crash. Why would we need more houses? So the government didn't do much and and probably caught up on it late. So it's going to take four or five years, probably in our view, for it to work out for us to have, be building enough houses because you have to rebuild capacity in the sector. Um, but the the long term the big challenges for us are one is that the state has has pulled out of of social housing in a big way and it's not it's not usually the purview of of business organizations to talk about social housing but actually we need a lot of social housing or housing built by the state at affordable prices in yeah. ireland and and the other issue and and I think a major one from a private sector point of view is the cost of land and the availability of of land is a, is a major, major issue. The cost of land in Ireland is completely out of whack with where it is elsewhere. So if you look at housing affordability and the cost of houses, uh, our construction costs uh, and, and, our, and our taxes are, are pretty much in line with, with other countries in Europe. But the cost of land is way out of line. That's causing a lot of issues um, and, and it'll probably take a long time to solve, but, but it's the big issue for us.
0: Okay. Uh, and then I suppose maybe in terms of another piece, in terms of investment, there's been a lot of debate around, you know, the Dublin-centric approach and, and how we get greater regional um, investment. Is that something that you and I, Bec, are uh, have, have particular strong views on or, and what, what might those views be?
1: Yeah, so we we have a we have a kind of a regional structure. We have we have uh, regional offices in in uh, several regions, including Cork, um, and and a very strong committee down in Cork advocating for business issues down there, um, and and that regional structure means that. That we would prefer, like a lot of our companies in Dublin are saying, Dublin's at capacity, and then some of the regions are crying out for investment. So the obvious solution is to try and get companies to move out uh, and 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 to invest more in in regional centres um, and particularly in the regional cities, because we're not going to have this kind of factory for every town development strategy that we had in the in the nineteen seventies. It's just impossible to get to get companies not to move to cities, but the the big focus then from our point of view needs to be on all the regional cities and trying to build up the capacity in those regional cities in things like housing public transport uh, and and skills to try and make them attractive uh, from a from an investment point of view so that they can compete um, and and look there's a certain amount of work with the national uh, the national planning framework Ireland 2040 the new capital investment plan that will uh, that will help uh, if if it's executed correctly, the big challenge I think from a from an ibit point of view is. We have a very poor record uh, in, in Ireland from a state point of view in executing projects well on time and, and on budget. And, and that's probably the next big stage. So we have a good plan in place with Ireland 2040, the government have. Um, but the next stage is actually delivering the plan, which is where we've fallen down in the past. So that's going to be the big issue for our members is seeing that delivery in the next couple of years.
0: And is there much confidence that we're more likely to do better in that execution?
1: Um, yeah, I think I think there's it, it's a mixed picture, right? Uh, I think there's hope, uh, more so than confidence. Um, the capacity is certainly going to be an issue because if you're trying to solve all these things at the same time, housing, infrastructure shortages in public infrastructure, uh, either do we have the money to do it? If we'll say the fiscal, uh, the, our fiscal um, books take a hit from from Brexit or from U.S. tax reform or something else. Um, and the second is, do we have the workers to do it? The big challenge that we're hearing from people who are, I guess, charged with delivering this infrastructure is how do you find uh, the the 100,000 or so workers we reckon they need out to 2020 to deliver on the plans they currently have? And that's going to be the big, big challenge when migration and net migration isn't going to be like it was in 2004 and four and five when you had a quarter of a million people from Eastern Europe coming in the, into the country. So where do you find the workers to do it? I think that's the big challenge ahead.
0: Okay, so Brexit has been mentioned a little bit in in some of your answers, I guess. In the context of concerns for Irish business, um, is Brexit absolutely the main one, or to what extent are you know day-to- day issues such as labor shortages, infrastructural challenges, obviously the national broadband plan and the issues around that. Um, where do you see, I suppose, in terms of the real um, concerns um, across Irish business at the moment?
1: Oh, yeah, Bre- brexit is is number one. Uh, across pretty much every business, and particularly if you talk to the indigenous uh, companies, the the food companies and, and the Irish, other Irish uh, PLCs and other Irish SMEs, uh, Brexit is number one. It's this huge uncertainty on the horizon. And I guess you're always going to have challenges in the economy with skills, with infrastructure, with being able to do the right things in the long term. And... Um, but Brexit is 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 a, is a absolute absolute uh, shift in how our relationship is with a, probably our major trading partner for a lot of those companies. So it's it's crucial that that there's a deal. Um, we're looking at a little bit more uncertain on whether or will be or not uh, coming into March, um, and and it's going to be a it's going to be a big uh, it's going to be a big issue, and particularly if you look at the impact first of sterling, the depreciation of sterling having on exporters then if you look through at the impact that long term the trade uh, break with uh, with the uk leaving the eu would, would be and then if you look at the cost of the non-tariff barriers the the kind of extra administration and time delays and everything else that come with with trading with a non-eu country uh, that that have been solved by the single market and now we're going to have those with with our major trading partner and not just that we sell a lot to the uk we sell a lot to europe through the uk as well and that's that's going to be a huge challenge i think a lot of smes in particular uh, we've done surveys of our members are struggling to prepare because of the uncertainty out there and um, so there's there's a big challenge ed
0: so clearly there's a lot of uncertainty around it at the moment are we seeing much economic impact currently or is that really something that will only come post brexit and um, whether that's with an agreement or or not
1: I think we're already seeing part of it, right? I think I think the potential impact after Brexit is is much larger um after it actually happens. Um, but the the impact we're seeing already is that uncertainty piece. The impact that has on investment, uh, the impact that has on whether companies uh, uh, companies' ability to make decisions is curtailed. If they can't, if you can't know what your return on capital is going to be, what your return on investment is going to be, they're they're not going to make those investments. And a lot of a lot of companies are holding off at the moment. So that's where the big challenge is. Uh, then on the other side. Um, because of the depreciation of sterling companies' margins are getting eaten into their having to swallow the extra cost of, of trading to the UK with a weaker sterling and, and that's a big challenge for them too. and um, so it's going to be a, it's going to be a real challenge but the, 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 the long term trade disassociation is probably a much bigger issue and has the potential to really do damage to the Irish economy.
0: I, I suppose where where would you see your analysis by way of you know best and worst case scenarios?
1: Look, the best case scenario is closest possible deal, and um, we'll see where that turns out over the next couple of months. Um, worst case scenario is that you get a no deal Brexit. That there's uh, that the level of uncertainty caused by a no deal Brexit alone, not just among businesses but for households that are that are relying on those kind of companies for their for their wages every week and um, would have a significant impact uh, you know and it's it's very hard for economic forecasters to look at this in the same way that it's hard for companies because there's such a range of possible outcomes and all of this depends on you know, the uncertainty piece that, uh, you know, Keynes used to call it animal spirits, People, people's views of the future can be uh, changed hugely by uh, by political events uh, and particularly large political events like this. So if it has a long-term impact on investment, a long-term impact on people's uh, standards of living, um, and, and we expect that it will, um, then there's, there's a major challenge there, particularly in no deal. If there's a deal... Companies will, it will cost, it will be a challenge for the Irish economy, but we get past it. Um, and particularly if if the global economy continues to grow. Now that's unsure in itself, but but if the global economy continues to grow, then we're in a good position if there's a deal. If there's no deal, then all bets are
0: off. So if there's a deal, is there like, is it it's still potentially... Obviously hurting the Irish economy is the key piece of viewpoint that seems to exist. Is there any potential benefits from that UK exit, you know, w- either with that deal or, or without in terms of, you know, additional opportunities or whether, you know, we've diversified because of the uncertainty that businesses have been diversified? So, th- so could there be, with a deal, could we actually, a good deal, could we actually potentially benefit because business has diversified further outside of the UK because of the uncertainty?
1: So I, th- I think no matter what the deal is, uh, no matter what the outcome is, bar the UK stays in Europe, it's a net negative. Uh, Ireland, um We export, uh, or about 90% of our exports are FDI, right, Um, and and they're less impacted by Brexit, although they still are, and only 10% are Indigenous companies. But the 10% that comes from Indigenous companies supports as many jobs in the Irish economy and as many households as the the other 90, in effect. So that 10%, what happens to those Indigenous sectors? Um, And and they're highly reliant. 40% of their exports go to the UK. Um, So those those um those companies are going to be severely challenged um, on the other hand you hear people talking about well financial services companies coming to dublin for example but the impact of that is probably in the low thousands uh, of of financial services companies uh, of financial services jobs coming into into dublin mostly um and the impact of a hard brexit or any form of brexit is tens of thousands of lost jobs mostly outside Dublin mostly in rural economies so actually you've kind of got two different impacts that thing we were talking about earlier about the regional divergence between Dublin and the rest could potentially widen because of brexit and um, so so even if there are upsides they're they're pretty minor compared to the to the scale of the downsides
0: okay then like so I suppose in terms of describing the current political and economic climate I suppose it's it's one of uncertainty is is, is very clear what then is your thoughts on the government's most recent budget?
1: Yeah, so we saw the most recent recent budget. It was kind of a boring budget, really, in that there wasn't a huge amount, there wasn't a huge amount about it uh, in the papers, there wasn't a huge amount of major changes. Um, so that was fine uh, to, to a certain extent, you know, you don't want exciting budgets. Um, from a business point of view, you just want governments to get on with kind of day to day business and try and provide certainty. In the, in the kind of Bigger picture though, and um, one of the big things that's happened, which we mentioned a little bit earlier, was that this corporation tax we've gone from four billion a year to ten billion a year in a very short space of time, and it's all to do with this global corporate tax change. And what the government have done and continue to do is put that money into current spending. So, while on budget, they everything was a little bit boring. There wasn't any big announcements. There's an ongoing trend of building up our current spending, particularly the overruns in the health budget being funded out of these corporate tax returns, which are absolutely, talking to the companies who pay them, uncertain going into the future. So we uh, while budget day was boring and while we were, we were quite pleased with the budget itself, the long-run fiscal trend towards paying for particularly health from corporate tax, uh, that's uncertain, uh, worries us uh, and definitely worries businesses because uh, not many businesses would build uh, build um, build current spending off one-off uh, increases in revenues. And, and that's what we're doing at the moment. So there are long-term worries there.
0: But you, in terms of, you know, concerns that have been expressed that it was a budget focusing on trying to appease voters with potential elections, you'd see that as less the case or...? Or what uh, look,
1: I, I mean, I mean every, every budget, to a certain extent, is 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 trying to appease voters, uh, one group or another. Um, but uh, within the political constraints, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, though you didn't see huge tax cuts, you didn't see huge uh, spending increases there. But it's kind of some of the money that's being spent, almost not announced on budget day, but being announced. Um, so we had supplementary estimates, the government do an extra bit of spending every year at the end of the year they have overrun some one department or another they have a hole to fill somewhere or they decide to do something new during the year that they didn't think about in budget day and the government have put 1.3 billion which is almost an extra budget uh, into uh into spending in 2018 that they didn't expect last year when they set the budget for the year and that's the trend that worries us more so than the spending on budget day itself it's that trend of you know taking decisions during the year that's Break the budget that you had set, uh, you know, only only months before, or uh, having these constant overruns and spending that then have to be filled from somewhere, and um, that's that's the big challenge, I think. But look, yeah, we're going to have uh, we're going to have always this political influence on budgets, uh, and and that's the reality of of the political budget cycle. Is I think the the phrase that that economists use for it. The, that that always, when you're coming up close to an election, people tend to do a little more in the budget. Then they tend to cut off uh, uh, when when uh, when they get into power at the start. They tend to spend a little less. But that's just the reality of it, and I think everyone kind of expects it. The worry is this kind of stuff that's happening, where we set a budget and then break it uh, very soon after, and and usually funding that through overruns that were unexpected in corporate tax.
0: Or I, I might now want to try and take you back um, and get you reminiscing a little bit about your college days if okay. Um, so economics has clearly always been a passion and interest for you as you did economics and history for your BA and you followed up by an MA here at UCC. I suppose yeah. why, why the interest and what got, what got your interest and was there any particular favourite area of economics that, that piqued that interest? So
1: I suppose I was always interested in uh, in kind of current affairs, right? And, and economics played a big a big role in current affairs always. And um, so growing up um, during the nineteen nineties and the boom, then um, going to college, like you know, the, you couldn't avoid uh, the, the reality uh, of of economics and the impact it has in the country. So that that basically was was my was my basic interest now. When I did my BA, I was probably more interested in history than economics, actually, um, and and it wasn't until I did my master. So I, I I did my BA, finished, in, I started in two thousand and five, finished in two thousand and eight, and then I was I was working or, or not working after the after the recession for a few years, and came back and did uh did the UCC uh, the MA in UCC in two thousand and ten, um, and and what drew me to it, I think, were a couple of things that that really were. Different, uh, I guess, about the UCC course was that it was built around projects. It was built around um, it was built around teamwork uh, and team projects, and it was that that kind of attracted me to it in a way that uh, one of the things that I probably didn't enjoy a certain amount about uh, about uh, my BA was there was a lot of it's you. A book, your lecture notes and and, and a blank piece of paper uh, it was the examination style, whereas the the MA and UCC offered something different, which was a lot of project work, a lot of teamwork uh, and a lot of a lot of uh, kind of presentations and and that kind of stuff, which I thought would be beneficial in the long run. And I think looking back on it uh, definitely has been.
0: Were there any particular lecturers that you would ascribe um, having had a particularly profound influence on your um, education and, and and subsequent career development? Um. <laughs>
1: I, don't, I don't I don't name anyone in case I in case I leave anyone out <laughs> I suppose. Um, so look like, look there was lots there was uh, Ona Leary Declan Jordan and Eleanor Doyle uh, the. Justin Dorn, Frank Crowley, um, all, all, uh, all were either on the BA or, or I did uh, some research work for for Eleanor when I was when I was finishing it up, um, so who all, you know, had a had an influence, and then of course I, I worked in 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 UCC as a lecturer for a year after finishing, um, so so like look, there was lots of colleagues down there who had an impact on me. Um, but I, I think the, the the benefit of of the UCC Masters, and I look back at it now, is that there was a big focus on project work, on teamwork, and then on on communication. So being able, to, so I guess the structure is important if there's potential students listening to it, the structure is, or, or was at the time, around three projects that you did for, uh, that you did for companies, basically, for the PM group, for Board GOSH and for Science Foundation Ireland, I think were the three projects we did, plus all the kind of classwork that you do. And, and those three projects have been really beneficial to me in the job that I'm doing now. So so I I uh, I do a huge amount of work with companies where you have to be able to present. You have to be able to communicate. So it's not good enough in any subject now. Um, when you're going out, coming out of college, it's not good enough just to be able to know what you're talking about in terms of the subject matter. You have to be able to communicate it, talk about it, and, and be able to write well as well. And and the focus of the Masters on 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 those things, on the communication side of things, really, really helped me. Uh, particularly in my current
0: role it's you know it's very interesting because I mean, clearly we often hone in on the on the subject expertise, but clearly those softer skills around communications and um, team development you, you you see is so important beyond those you know in terms of clearly university is a really important part of of a of an individual's growth and development what What tips and advice might you have for students um, to get the most out of it now to you have an opportunity to reflect back some time later
1: I think to get the most out of it, uh, the big challenge is to, to really try yourself in um, and to engage in all that soft skill stuff. I think you can't, I can't emphasize that enough. Like uh, there are lots of good students out there who are very capable of of getting to grips with the subject matter and, and being very good particularly we'll say for for economics there's lots of people capable of being good economists and, and knowing what they're talking about i think developing those soft skills is the huge part of college uh, college life that that you know that students can differentiate themselves and make themselves get the get the most out of it uh you're talking about kind of communication skills team skills that kind of stuff and when we talked uh, to uh I guess about a third of IBEX work is is in industrial relations and working with HR people in in the labour force. HR people all the time, they say when they're interviewing graduates, what they're looking for, a, they're looking for, okay, what results did you get and did you get on well in your in your college course? But what they're really looking for is, can this person talk? Can they stand up and communicate? Can they can they write? Uh, can they do some of those soft, soft skill pieces where can they work with people? And, and those are the skills that actually are differentiating people because so many, uh, people now have have higher le- higher levels of education, um, and so many people have have master's degrees. That the big way to really stand out, and the big way then to progress once you get into an organization, any organization really, is is to have those soft skills that make you a candidate to be able to. Show that you have potential to be a manager, for example, or potential to be able to communicate externally or communicate with key people in the organisation higher up, and also the real skills. I think that that students could develop, uh, and 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 I think UCC actually do a good job of, um, of of helping them develop, um, that that will really uh, that will really stand them out in the workforce.
0: And, and to what extent, I suppose, like, it's like the classroom only allows certain amounts and there's the, the wider university life. And, and had you much involvement in societies or sport in your time here?
1: I, I didn't really have have much involvement in societies. Actually, I've, I've I, I don't uh, I didn't really get involved a huge amount. And I suppose I was probably an older student going back, so I was I was possibly past. I worked for a few years, so I was possibly past the uh, the age where, where that was uh, where that was of great interest for me. But it definitely helps. I think looking now at from a position where if we're hiring people or whatever else, any of those kind of external activities that you can show you're getting involved in. A it shows a bit of initiative, um, but B it also shows that you're capable of of doing particular roles. That you're capable of leading t- leading a team if you're if you're getting involved uh, in those kind of uh, those kind of groups. And and they're very they're very positive. And and any of the things, including sports and and any other activities externally, they, they show a little bit more about who the person is and what kind of fit they'll be in an organisation. So so they definitely help. I, I probably wasn't as good as I could have been at them, but uh, but definitely I'd recommend them to any student if they if they want to if they want to make themselves stand out.
0: Any regrets from your time as a student?
1: Um, probably plenty, but um, not not academically. I don't think. Uh, I think um, I think I probably I probably got a great amount out of it. The fact that I came back after having spent a few years in and out of work uh, during our session, I probably was a bit hungrier going back in doing my master's to do, to do better uh, and to, and to make the best out of it. Um, that, that really probably, I, I threw myself in at the deep end. So like, I mean, in terms of regrets, I, I don't, I don't really have a huge amount. I think it went uh, particularly in UCC. I think the master's was, was really good. Um, and, and, you know if if i had any regret it would be like a you know some of the skills that probably i could do it now going back and 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 working on again um you know when you get out into the workforce it doesn't end there in terms of education you have to keep on working on those skills and 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 i thought that 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 UCC was a great place to do that so so i'd nearly uh, i don't want to put myself in a bind here but with, with our own hr but i'd nearly go back and do something else you know in that you know you're still you have to keep developing those skills always
0: We've lots of offerings here on you, Jared, if you, you want to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and maybe just, uh, I suppose, finally, um, in terms of uh, your own, like you said, you you lectured for a period that you see after MA and then you went on to IBEC. Um, and I guess maybe just if you might talk about in terms of your views, in terms of the ideas of mapping out a future career or just kind of making the most of opportunities that come up, were you were you a fan of you know trying to map that out on a structured basis or is it more uh, just see how opportunities arise and you pick whichever takes your fancy
1: so, so like as with anything a huge part of it's luck right it's timing and all the rest of it so when I finished my BA I came out right into a recession and things didn't go great when I came out of my master's the economy was picking up uh, I got I was I was lucky I think to get a to get a job lecturing so soon after after coming out of a master's um, and and I, and I was lucky in IBEC in that I got a place that kind of allowed me to develop and where things worked out very well but Yeah, you have to be, you have to, I guess, be always looking for an opportunity to help develop, to to think about developing yourself. So uh, I think about. Sometimes people think about developing their career, I guess, and what career paths they take. But, but I think a focus on, on keeping uh, your own uh, skills up, uh, continuing to do uh, continuous development on yourself uh, is, is probably as big an issue as, as plotting out your career. Because a huge amount of that is just timing and luck uh, and getting the right opportunity or the interview goes right in the day for a job. Uh, but but actually getting getting kind of a broader skill set and throwing yourself in uh, to continuous development and continuous learning is probably the biggest challenge for people. Um, so so definitely mapping that out and trying to think about the things that you're weak at that that you might need for a job that you might want in the future and looking at jobs that you might want and seeing well. What do the people that have those jobs? What do they have that I don't have? And trying to work on those—that's yeah, it's it's something everyone has to do if they want to be successful externally. And even we see it now. Um, every organisation. So I'm on the board of the the Central Statistics Office, the CSO, down there in Man. Um, and and every organisation there's a huge focus even public sector organisations on developing people on developing their skills and on this continuous development piece and it's going to be a bigger challenge for I guess the graduates now than graduates ever in the past because unfortunately because of of the pensions crisis retirement ages are going to be pushed out I I think I probably have another 40 years or more of work um, and I've been working for almost 10 Um, so like to get out uh, and, and to continue to to develop yourself is going to be more and more important because you can see how much things have changed in the global economy and in global business over the last forty or fifty years. Most students now are going to have long careers, probably until they're seventy, and and they're going to need to continue to develop themselves, which which is probably the big uh, the big thing that they need to that they need to think about.
0: So, I guess we could view that as a negative in terms of we're going to be working longer, but I guess it also, the positive is that we're living longer. So, um, <laughs> Jared, t- thanks very much for your time. No thanks very much. That's all we have time for on this episode of Insights, the Cubs Business Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and got an insight into how Cubs lecturers, researchers, and graduates are making an impact in the wider world. My thanks to Jared Brady, Head of Tax and Fiscal Policy at IBEC, for joining us today. Don't forget, you can subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts or Spotify. And for more information, go to CubsUCC.com. I'm Anthony Macdonald. Thanks for listening and join me next time for more Cubs Business Insights.